Hello, everyone, and welcome back to season two, episode three of the Computomics podcast. We're very happy to have you here. And today we will have Claude Becker, who is professor of genetics at the LMU in Munich with us. And we will be talking about epigenetics in terms of plant breeding, the way that the field has progressed, some of Claude's work, as well as where he sees epigenetics fitting into plant breeding and predictions. We will briefly discuss the Computomics product methyl score and talk about the future of where we hope epigenetics will go in the next 20 years. We hope you enjoy the episode and here it is. So it's uh, great to have you here, Claude, and welcome to the episode, and nice to have you. Thanks for having me. Maybe we can start off with just a simple introduction to what got you interested in epigenetics and in maybe in plant sciences in general, and sort of something that you find uh, really keeps your attention or keeps you involved in the field, like what keeps you driving and um, what keeps you going. Mm-hmm. So um, I think the first interest in epigenetics came about when I was an undergraduate. Um, at that time, not particularly interested in plant biology. Um, and then later on, when I did my PhD, I started working on small RNAs, which have these this implication of being regular, regulators of, of epigenetic uh, marks. And ultimately, when I joined that Weigel's lab at the Max Planck in, in Tübingen as a postdoc, this is what, what really got me started, um, because at that time, the first whole genome sequencing uh, methods came about to look at DNA methylation at a uh, whole genome level. And so we, we got started on, on several projects that looked at how DNA methylation if and how DNA methylation varied um, between individuals or between species, for example. I think that's probably also thanks to what Detlef considers his sort of butterfly scientific personality, where he's comfortable sort of going into different directions and exploring different, um, you know, variations on different topics. And uh, probably he wasn't that worried about going somewhere new. Would you, was that correct? Yeah, he once described it as having a short attention span, and uh, <laughs> I think that is somewhat correct. So he has this tendency <laughs> to shift topics every couple of years. And I uh, was lucky in that regard that I just got in when, when he started uh, to be interested in something new, which uh, was DNA methylation uh, sequencing analysis. And so what did you discover or what was one of the things that came out of that work? So when I, when I started, um, there was really only, only one or two labs at the time that had done any whole genome DNA methylation profiling um, in Arabidopsis thaliana, which is this genetic model uh, for, for, for plants. And there was very simple questions that still needed to be answered. And one of them was, does DNA methylation vary at all? So at the time, there was a... This, this whole hype about genetic variation that could now be profiled in large populations. And then the next question to ask was, what about the epigenetic patterns? So what's now called the epigenome, so the whole spectrum of, of epigenetic marks at different, different levels of the genome, would they vary between individuals? Would they vary over time? Would there be such a thing as um, epigenetic mutations? 
some mutations that don't occur in the sequence of the DNA, but to the chemical modifications of, of this DNA. So all of these questions were unanswered at the time. And uh, when I came to the lab, we set out to uh, do two experiments. One was to look at uh, in, in a greenhouse-grown population of Arabidopsis that had been kept in the greenhouse for 30 years, a single seed to send, and to, to ask how has the DNA methylation evolved over this time. And the other one was a sort of a, a natural experiment that um, had occurred in the U.S., where Arabidopsis is not native, but had been introduced during uh, European colonization of North America and had by, by a single founder event and had then spread across the US. And so we could look at these several hundred years of, um, of diversification and ask how does how has DNA methylation evolved in, in these natural settings? Okay, and I'm actually very curious because I don't even know um, the results of that. So what was in the greenhouses, what did you find? So um, we looked at we looked at two things at the time. So we looked, so DNA methylation happens on cytosines. And, um, so it's actually cytosine methylation. And so we, we found that this was largely stable over these 30, 31 generations that we had at our disposal. Um, but there were definitely more single site changes than there there were at the genetic level. So let's say mm -hmm. over 30 generations, you would find maybe 20 DNA polymorphisms that had accumulated in, mm -hmm. in every one of these lines. But we would find several hundred to several thousand single cytosine methylation changes. Interesting. So there was, but, but nobody knew what what this would um, mean what or, this, yeah, yeah what this would mean or what the impact would be right probably right. probably none because they was spread all over the genome um, and so we the next question we asked was okay is there any any larger shift in in regional DNA methylation patterns so very often DNA methylation clusters together in, in like stretches of DNA, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and these would be the methylation elements that you would consider to have a regulatory purpose. And so we asked, how often do, do these whole blocks of DNA methylation change, if they change at all? And, and there the pattern was quite different, because then we saw numbers that were much closer to um, what we saw for genetic mutations. So these, these larger changes in DNA methylation seem to be quite rare. And what have we since then found out about what impact these changes in um, these epigenetic changes have in crops or plants? What are some examples of actual effects on plants that result from epigenetic changes? Mm -hmm. um, so in crops, DNA methylation is much harder to to study, first of all, because the genomes tend to be much larger than the one in Arabidopsis. So that's that's the, that's one reason. But the other reason is that uh, in many uh, crops, such as maize, for example, DNA methylation is much more frequent than in Arabidopsis. And that's to a large extent because these genomes carry a lot of transposable elements, and transposable elements are silenced via DNA methylation. So if a genome contains many transposable elements, um, then your methylation rate is going to go up just as a consequence of that. Yeah. 
Exactly. So there's much more DNA methylation. So it's um, it's much harder to study uh, changes in in these genomes, and it's also more, much more costly even nowadays to resequence a whole maize genome compared to sequencing an Arabidopsis genome. Mm -hmm. But still, there have been there have been a few very interesting cases in which um, spontaneous DNA methylation changes have been attributed to some relevant phenotype. And I think the most striking one that I recall is one in oil palm, um, which actually made it to a nature cover in, I think it was 2015. So this was a study by, by Rob Martinson's lab. Um, so oil palm, which is which is grown a lot in, in Southeast Asia, um, has this problem. So it's a clonally propagated crop. So it usually gets propagated by cutlings, as far as I know, uh, that then get planted and, and after I think it's 20 years or so. They st they have they make their first fruits, and in in quite a high incidence, 15 to 20 percent of the plants, the fruits um, are not of the normal phenotype. They have an abnormal phenotype, and these fruits can be used for oil production. That's a really high and percentage, so right? 50 to 20. I mean, that's really that's percentage. a really high percentage. Yeah. And it also means that, that 15 to 20 percent of the of the crops are planted and then wasted. A decade later or two, it turns out that that they are of no use. And so, for years, people have tried to figure out what made these um, plants produce these weird fruits because they were all clones, so they were all genetically the same. And, and so Rob Snap found that there was one locus uh, in, in encoding for um, a growth factor that had a spontaneous DNA methylation change in the plants that produce these weird fruits. And so there's a transposon sitting in the intron of the gene, so in the non-coding part of the gene. And uh, when this transposon is methylated, everything is fine and the intron gets spliced out correctly. But when the DNA methylation goes away, and nobody knows why that happens, but it seems to happen at a certain rate, then the splicing pattern uh, becomes abnormal and the resulting protein is not functional anymore. And this is what leads to this to these weird fruits. Interesting. So uh, is there, what are the possible ways of working with that sort of information? What are the things that we can take away from that knowledge, do you think? Maybe not specifically on oil palm, but in general. Um, well, I think the lesson to learn from this is that there are these freak events that can have a, a massive impact, mm -hmm. um, not unlike genetic mutations. So mm -hmm. the same thing could have happened via genetic mutation. Mm -hmm. the, the second lesson to learn from is that there, it's difficult to make uh, a general rule out of it. So. Um, I think what, what one can take home from it is that if such abnormal patterns arise at a certain frequency that cannot be explained by a genetic mutation, it is worth investigating the epigenetic layer mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. there might be something uh, recurring that, that's happening there. But it's, to, to really track it down, it's, 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 it's really tough to pinpoint it to the specific location. Do you think that crop geneticists in general are comfortable with these concepts at the moment? Do you think they will be? What do you think is lacking um, to sort of bring this sort of analysis, this next layer of analysis to common practice or to something that is discussed 
um, you know, more commonly or at the same rate mm -hmm. as genetic uh, changes? So, um, I think for from a, from a breeder's point of view, um, it would be uh, breeders are probably more reluctant to accept epigenetics as a, 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 a trait worth mm -hmm, mm -hmm, pursuing mm -hmm. or worth looking at. And in parts, they have a point because these patterns tend to be unstable. This is also what we have seen. So when an epigenetic change occurs, there is a high probability that this change will actually revert back to its original state. Oh, interesting. After some time. And so from a breeder's perspective, this is, of course, um, a nightmare because you can't be sure that you have fixed this particular trait. Sure. Um, on the other hand, now with gene editing technology um, being more and more efficient, there is also developments in, in the direction that you can have not targeted mutations, but targeted epi mutations. So you mm -hmm. basically tag the, the, the epigenetic machinery to a particular locus in the genome to alter um, the epigenetic state of that locus and hence that produced the phenotype. Um, so there, there is new potential there, but I think this is really in its, in its very, very beginning. And it will take a while for, um, for this to become common practice uh, or common consideration, let's say, in, in, uh, in plant genetics and plant breeding. What do you think, you know, putting out there products like um, methyl score with computomics, what do you think those kinds of products can really, um, what kind of insight can they really bring? Or, you know, what can we, not what can we promise, because I think that's the wrong word, but what is something useful that can come out of, you know, this kind of analysis for someone who's thinking about it? So for someone who says, um, maybe there's a, a number of genetic locations that seem to be acting differently than predicted, or maybe epigenetics is actually playing a role in my either uh, crop or plant or reference organism, et cetera. What does, uh, what can methyl score sort of help them with, mm -hmm. let's say? So, so methyl score is, is a tool that um, Jurgen and I started designing when we were both still at the Max Planck, or at least in, 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 in thought. Um, that was that has the purpose of identifying DNA methylation differences between samples or mm -hmm. within populations. And it's not the first tool to do this, but it is the first tool to take into consideration the DNA methylation patterns of plants. And DNA methylation in plants is much more complex than DNA methylation in mammals in the sense that it can happen in different sequence contexts, um, in contrast to mammals, where it only occurs in one sequence context. And so most of the tools that are out there have been designed with mammalian DNA methylation in mind. And, and so we had this idea of designing a tool that, that would specifically address plant methylation and be able to, to look for differences in plant methylation, in DNA methylation, um, particularly in plant genomes. Oh, interesting. And so what you can... So what you can do with the with the tool such as such as this one is to basically you put in your let's say you have a, a phenotypically diverse um, population that is that you know is genetically identical or almost identical, and then you can you can use this tool to to figure out where the DNA methylation differences are, and then you can use this in a very similar approach 
to what you would do with genetic diversity data. So try to correlate phenotype um, to epigenotype. Mm -hmm. Do you think more tools will come into play in the next few years that will integrate epigenetic um, diversity into sort of the analysis or the, even the visualization or the discussion? Do you think that's coming? I think it's becoming more standard also in, so I think one, one instance where we can see this is a reference genomes, which now often also come along with like the reference methylome. So this mm -hmm. at least presenting the methylation environment of a particular species because there can be differences uh, in between species that are, that are quite drastic. So Arabidopsis, for example, is an outlier in now we now we know it's an outlier when it comes to to DNA methylation because it has so little of it. Uh, most plant genomes have much more. Um, and so um, I think what's still lacking is a broad profile of so the DNA methylation is only a small part of the epigenome. There is mm -hmm. all the histone modifications mm -hmm, that come mm -hmm, into play, mm -hmm. and they are so much harder to study because you you always need this chromatin mutation assays that are very tricky. You need very good antibodies. Um, there is so many different ones that you need to profile, so it becomes costly very fast. So this is this is still a whole different game. So I think whenever somebody is able to to do this more efficiently. Um, this this will be then the field will really get rolling you mean so then mm -hmm. then we're really going to be able to look at it as a whole complete uh, picture yeah because currently we are missing a lot of the layers of, mm -hmm. of the epigenome mm -hmm. dna mm -hmm. methylation is the easiest one to look for and it's also the one that's clearly associated with transposons and so on but for example for dna methylation in genes which is a thing, it exists, but nobody knows what it does there. If you get rid of it, not much happens, but still it's, it has been conserved in evolution across species. So it must be good for something, but nobody's figured <laughs> out what it actually does. I love that about science. I love that it, there's, with every answer, there's 10 questions, right? So um, I don't know, I think that's fantastic. It's, it's always forcing us to look at things in a different way, right? It, you can never really get comfortable and when people get comfortable, that's when, um, you know, essentially the field gets held up or, you know, taken on, on the wrong path because it's never really that way because we're always just looking at one aspect or one portion or one angle of the, of the reality of it. And there's always so many more angles. There's an infinite amount of angles, right, to look at, at things in, in research. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so I think what people have come to realize over the last couple of years when it comes to epigenomes is that there is, they can't be separated from, from the genetic data. I think one reason why epigenetics has been uh, treated a bit, um, how to put this, like a stepchild. Has been neglected a bit by geneticists. Yeah, as a stepchild was was also because there had been this hype that that very often was um, promoted by but by, by ecologists who, when something couldn't be explained by genetics right away, tended to to associate this to an epigenetic uh, component, mm. some unknown epigenetic component, and and this all very rapidly led to 
induced heritable traits that would be epigenetically coded and so on. But but there was very little data to support this. And this is all why a lot of geneticists didn't take this very seriously at the time. But I think what has emerged now is that there are um, there can be genetic differences between individuals that are tiny, but that have a massive epigenetic component uh, tail attached yeah. to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Well, that's interesting. So for example, in this... Go ahead. In this, in this initial experiment that we carried out in this in the greenhouse with our redopsis, we had one line that stuck out uh, like a sore thumb and that, that had many more of these methylation changes compared to every other line, although they were genetically almost identical. And then when we looked at the, gen the genome sequencing data, we found this one SNP, so one nucleotide difference that happened to be in the component of the epigenetic machinery. And, and this was... Um, very likely the reason why this line had accumulated so many more epigenetic changes compared to everything else because of one single nucleotide change. Interesting. Well, I'm really looking forward to see what happens in the field, um, you know, in the coming decade and how everything comes together and how in, you know, the same way that we used to think there was one reference genome 20 years ago, um, and in 20 years, which, you know, the last 20 years has kind of flown by. So I guess the next 20 may, may as well. And then in 20 years, we'll look back and think, oh, we were so naive, uh, you know, to, <laughs> uh, to how we, we're going to use methylation and epigenetics in general in, in our yeah. world and, um, you know, how common it will be. So that's, that's my sort of hope. Yeah, I think that the game changer clearly has been the, the all the sequencing advances over the last 15 years or so. And, and now we see this whole revolution with long read sequencing that, that finally lives up to the promises that, that were made 10 years ago when, when this started to come along. And, and so the next step in this is to, to use these long reads to also extract the the epigenetic information, for example, so not not simply the, the DNA sequence information, but both PacBio or, or Oxford nanopore sequencing data has the potential to to contain all this information that, that we are still not not able to really extract confidently. So the first publications on this are, are now starting to emerge. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you very much for your time, and I really appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful. Um, end of 2020 as we speak and when this is released it will already be 2021 so let's see what 2021 is bringing for us <laughs> as this podcast well, it can comes only, up. it can only get better right yeah. <laughs> knock on wood so anyway thank you Claude. i really appreciate it. it was a pleasure to talk to you thank you thanks for having me so thank you everyone for listening to this episode with claude becker on epigenetics it's amusing to hear us recording this at the end of 2020, thinking about what 2021 will bring. And um, yeah, I guess it's important to stay positive and realistic and optimistic and really look for the benefits of what is coming for us this year. And thank you everyone who listens to our podcast. You guys mean a lot to us and we hope you come back to the next episode.